Welcome to the Leader Impact Podcast. We are a community of leaders with a network in over 350 cities around the world dedicated to optimizing our personal, professional, and spiritual lives to have impact. This show is where we have a chance to listen and engage with leaders who are living this out. We love talking with leaders, so if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions to make the show even better, please let us know. And the best way to stay connected in Canada is through our newsletter at leaderimpact.ca or on social media at Leader Impact. And if you're listening from outside of Canada, check out our website at leaderimpact.com. I'm your host, Lisa Peters, and our guest today is Bill Adzit. For his first five years of life, Bill was exposed to a violent father and two alcoholic parents. From age 5 to 15, he was in a residential school in the Yukon year-round. He went on to serve 37 years in the federal government in various departments before assuming his role with his own band, the Taltan First Nation. As the former president and CEO of the Taltan Nation Development Corporation, he established 30 joint venture operations with Canadian corporations. Under his leadership, gross revenue grew from $9 million per annum to more than $55 million. Bill is currently a consultant with Aero Transport and has a deep passion to help First Nations grow economically, collectively, and personally. Bill Adzit is a residential school conqueror. Join us now as he shares how his faith has moved him past deep hurt, <clears throat> anger, and adversity to achieve success in his business and personal life. Thanks for joining us, Bill. You're welcome. The, uh, the last time I saw you was March 13th. 2018 and and I remember seeing you and you had this um this positive air about you and I found your message so it, it was filled with so much hope and I remember leaving there thinking I have so many questions so it's taken me about four years to get back to you to ask the question okay because <laughs> I remember we get Q&A but I'm I, I I need that time to digest but you know four years a little long so thank you for joining us I'm I'm uh I'm excited to get going with you. So I really just want to ask you now, I mean, you have a story to share and I, it's very powerful. So I would like you to just start sharing your story. Yeah. As you mentioned, um, both of my parents were alcoholics. Father was extremely violent. And uh, they split when I was five and my mother took my two sisters and moved to Wrangell, Alaska, which is just down the uh, Stikine River from Telegraph Creek. And my dad took my brother and I to Whitehurst, Yukon and dropped us off at the residential school. Wow. So we were in there uh, from age five until <clears throat> I was 15, I believe, just about 16 when I left. So how did that drop off go? Like, was it a oh, hard? Yeah, well, you know, I. I've been thinking about it, and uh, I still remember the day uh, when my my dad took us to the residential school. I all I remember is he's off talking to this uh, the the principal of the school, and then the next thing I knew, he turned around to walk away and left me there. So I just remember running up and grabbing his leg and holding on as tight as I can, crying and. Didn't know what was going on, and he just kind of peeled me off of his leg and walked away. And I didn't see him more than maybe two or three times in the next ten years. So wow, yeah, that's that's tough. I mean, as a child, as a parent, it's a t- 
Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Thank you for answering that question. I, mm. I, you know, I wondered how that, that went. Like, how, how does that happen? But all right. Yeah. I'll let you continue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was in the school, uh, as I mentioned, for 10 years. Uh, <clears throat> my brother and I were one of the four kids that never went home year round. I was there uh, year round, except for one or two summers when I went with uh, a supervisor for the summer. The rest time I was there, but never with family really. My brother, although he was younger, he had the opportunity. An aunt came and picked him up and took him, but I was left there for for the for the duration. And when I think about the residential school, you know, I I think of um, well. I've thought about this often lately. During my tenure there, uh, I'm guessing there was about 150 kids at the school. So during this time, I'm guessing there's probably 50 to 70 staff that were involved in teaching, supervising, whatever, administration. But out of all of them, there was only two or three that sexually abused me. So when I think back about this, I think, you know what? Most of them were good, but you know, your experience as a child being sexually abused, um, that's all you think about. I mean, I don't think about the, the, the good, what other people did. Mm-hmm. So to me, that affected me quite a bit. And then the other, I mean, there's not everything was bad. We had a supervisor by the name of Ruben Huber that was really into sports. So he got us playing hockey. So because uh, we were all at the same school for years, like uh, from age five till I was 15, all of us played hockey together. So we were a pretty good hockey team. So that added to your um, stay at the school, even though there was bad, you know, experiences. So, yeah. Okay. How were you, so of the three that, you know, um, didn't make your experience good, there was lots that did, but I, I think, you know, just in every sense, I mean, there's, you know, were you treated, did you get enough food? Did you, did you like, you know, at nights, did you, like, I don't know. I, I just, did you ever feel like the other 50 people that were taking care of you, did they do a good job or just a job? Ah, uh, a few of them did a good job, but you know, I mean, we were always hungry. Yeah, I can always remember uh, they had a pantry there and they always baked bread every day. And I, I remember us guys, we had to empty the, the garbage. So what we would do is we'd go in the pantry and st- put the bread into paper bags, throw it in the garbage can, haul it out to the dump. <laughs> and we dumped it, and then we take the bread back, and we'd have, we'd eat that every, at night. So that was the one thing we did. Another thing we did was in the pantry they had cases of of click and spam that they were made from years ago. So we used to go steal it by the case, and uh, after after hours we'd hand out this meat to everybody. And anyway, this. The, the, <laughs> The funny part of this is when they tore the school down, all the empty cans we used to throw them into the into the attic. And when they to- tore the school down, they pulled down the um, the ceiling. There was tons of <laughs> yeah to hide the evidence. <laughs> hide the evidence, yeah. So 
you know, that part of it. Yeah, you're always hungry, but I mean, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. So were there, you know, you said you went home, I think twice a supervisor took you home, uh, you know, for the summer. Some Like someone reached out to you, someone cared for you. Were there other people? Because I mean, I mean, if we fast forward how many years, you're a successful business person. Someone, you know, and I think of, um, and I wrote it down, Proverbs 12, we talk about course correction. Someone corrected the course. Someone reached out to you. Someone, you know, can you talk about some of the people that moved Yeah, well, my, my uh, first experience was uh, when they shut the residential school down. Uh, <clears throat> they just kind of put me out on the street and they got me a place to live in a re- renovated attic with a bed and a hot plate. Now, supposedly at 15, I was supposed to look after myself. But uh, I didn't have a clue about how to do anything. So somehow the uh, local RCMP found out that there was a young kid wandering around Whitehorse unsupervised. I was 15 years old. So anyway, uh, they picked me up and held me overnight. And next day they made me a ward of the court and put me into a foster home, into a Christian foster home by a lady by the name of Carol Gates. So... And on top of that, they found me a summer job working at, uh, it's called Hogan's store in Whitehorse in the sports department to keep me out of trouble. So it was very <laughs> providential that uh, yeah. things worked out like that. But, you know. Yeah. So I, I have to ask you, because your name is Bill. And I'm, yeah. I'm, you know, I don't think that's a indigenous name. And I, I think there was a story you, you have told about you, you had someone reach out to you and say, we can't, we can't move this. We, we can't have you named Bill or we I can't have you named your real name. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what happened was I moved into their house and their husband died. So because she was living in government housing, she had to leave and she moved and went back to Rimby, Alberta, south of Edmonton. Oh, so, <clears throat> so. Uh, I was going from foster home to foster home and ended up working in a, in a Cassia RBC for the summer. And I got a letter from me asking if I would be willing to go to Rimby, Alberta to finish my high school. So I didn't have any options, so I took it. So that was quite interesting because my first day in school, I got a call into the office by the principal. And he said to me, you know, coming to the school, he says, you've already got three strikes against you. I said, oh, okay, well, what's the problem? And he looked at me and he said, well, you're the only Indian kid in this school. And those days he used to use Indian all the time instead of, you know, Aboriginal, whatever. So I looked around, sure enough, it's true. I was the only Indian kid in the school. And then the second thing he said to me, you're um, older than everybody else in your class, which is true. You know, it's quite surprising. I only found out years later when I went through the residential school hearing Finally got to look at my report cards. I had failed grade one or grade two twice. So so that was why I was behind. Then they said the third thing, your name Belfry will never work in this school from now on. You're Bill Adsit. So I've been Bill Adsit ever since. So was your last name Adsit? Adsit, Bill Adsit, yes. So Adsit was always your last name? 
Right. Never, oh, yeah, never they changed. just changed my first name from Belfry to Bill. All right. Well. And it's been a problem all my life. Has it? Yes. Created a problem with, um, you know, with my passport uh, because anyway, yeah, it's been it's been a challenge. Yeah. And you never went you never went back? To, to Belfry? Yeah. No. Because, I mean, after, after I left, uh, I went to the military and then my career with the federal government. And because uh, everybody knew me as Bill, I just used Bill. Bill. It's easy. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yes. So did you ever go back? You, you mentioned you went back to the school. Yeah. Was that for uh, what, what reason did you go back to the residential school? Uh you mean after Rimbia? I never went back to the residential school. After oh. they closed it down, I okay. was, yeah, no. I, I was ended up in foster homes, as I mentioned. Okay, yeah. 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 So you went back for, uh, were they were they ripping it down, or was there something? Was oh, it no, it's just, uh, I, I just heard the, heard the story. So yeah. how, did you fe- how did you feel when you went back? The, what, what were you thinking? Uh, well, I mean, this is quite a ways in my story, but I, I mean, if, you know, they had a they had a re- reunion uh, of the residential schools in White or so about eight or nine years ago, and we oh. the kid all the kids got talking about what what went on there. So, yeah. Mm, all right. Yeah. So. Um- I had a couple of questions before I was going to move to a little bit about um, your professional uh, where you're working right now. Um, I, because I, I know, I mean, you're on this podcast because you are a Christian. And I, I, when I go back to what happened at the, the schools, where were you with God at that point? Well, you know, when you think about it, when I got out of the residential school at age 15, um, there's uh, what they call adverse childhood experiences. There's 10 of them. You know, like we just talked about uh, alcoholism, violence, separation, emotional, physical neglect, um, incarceration is mentioned, abandonment. But there's 10, 10 uh, adverse childhood experiences. And by my calculation, I figured I had nine out of 10. So when you look at the stats about that, uh, you know, what they say is if you have more than five, you're in deep trouble. So I ended up with nine out of 10. And sometimes I think at 10 out of 10. So, you know, obviously I was an angry, lost, lonely young kid when I got out of the school. So, yeah. And I mean, maybe we'll talk about it. Later, I th- I'm sure you'll you'll bring it up. We'll talk a little bit about that. Um, so you, I'm gonna flip my notes here. You served 37 years in the federal government in various departments before assuming your role with your own band, the Teltan First Nation. As the former mm-hmm. president and CEO, um, you grew the gross revenue from nine million per annum to 55 million. Yeah. That's an incredible amount of growth, and for any company, I, well, I think, um, did the corporations struggle? with with such a fast growth well you know <clears throat> when i hadn't been really involved with my first nation that was the first time i was back the only reason i got involved is because i was working with aboriginal business canada 
And one of the board members that worked with ABC was uh, a guy by the name of Jerry Asp, who was a Teltan. And he had found, heard through the grapevine that there was a Teltan working as a business development officer in Alberta. So they contacted me and asked me if I'd be willing to go up to uh, Tele- up to Dease Lake, which is close to Telegraph Creek, to help them develop an economic strategy for the nation. So the uh, ABC gave me um, permission to do that, and that's how I started getting involved. So I was there for a while, and then the next thing I know, they asked me if I would sit on the board, which I did. And then while I was still with the federal government, they asked me if I'd be the interim CFO, which I did. And then when I retired, they asked me if I'd take on the job as, as president of, of Caltan Nation Development Corporation, which I did. And uh, when I was there for a few days, I, because I know numbers very well, I looked at the financial statements and this, this company was technically, technically bankrupt. It didn't have any money, it had the contract, it was $13 million in debt. So I, my first suggestion was, okay, let's shut this down and start again. And nobody wanted to do that because, you know, the, the company's been there for already 20 years or yeah, about 20 years. So I said, okay, I took it on. So what I did was I phoned all of the creditors and said, TNDC is going into bankruptcy. I said, I'll make you a deal. I'll guarantee you 50% on the dollar if you let us survive. So they all did. So within a week, we went from 13 million to 6.5 million. That's all we had. That's our debt. And then the previous CEO went and had purchased six brand new Hitachi backhoes out of Prince George and they never used them. They were sitting all over the province. So I phoned um, <clears throat> Prince uh, George and said to the dealership, I said, I have two options for you. I said, uh, I'm going to stop payment on all the equipment. You can come and pick it up. They're scattered all over BC. And I and then he said, well, what's the second option? I said, well, the second option is this. I'm going to stop payment, but I'll deliver them to your office in Prince George. So they said, deliver them. So we did, and we end up uh, sending my crew down there. We end up cleaning them all up, sold them for, we got most of our money back. So that was another $3.5 million. So out of that, now we only own $3 million after about a month's work. So then we still didn't have any money. So I phoned uh, Barrick Gold in uh, Salt Lake City and talked to the CEO because that's the only contract we had. And I told them, look, TNDC is going bankrupt because you guys have underpaid us all these years and we can't afford it. And it's going to look really bad for the only First Nation working for Barrick to go bankrupt because you underpaid us. And then he says to me, he says, what, well, what do you want me to do? I said, why don't you just, uh, give us the same rate except pay for all our fuel? Because we had a lot of equipment out there. And he said, okay, deal. So then when they, that was the first deal. And then I went back and we still didn't have no money. So I phoned, I phoned, <laughs> phoned Barry back to follow me. I said, look, I still need help. I need a $750,000 loan. And he says to me, he says, well, what collateral do you have? I said, well, we don't have any collateral except all that old equipment sitting at your site that's been there for years. And he said, okay, we'll take that. So we signed over the equipment and he gave us the money. And after that, things started turning around simply because uh, our contract was starting to make money. And then there was all kinds of 
development that's happened during my tenure, which I can't credit, take credit for, but it's just very fortunate. We had Nova Gold there. We had uh, Alta Gas with their Mecca Hydro project. We had the NTL Power Line. There's lots of projects. So because of all of that work in there, we didn't have any company. So I, I thought to myself, we have to give our Tel 10 members the option of other jobs other than driving truck or looking at camp and catering. So that was the reason why I set up the 30 different contracts. I set up contracts with bridge companies, road building companies, helicopter companies, everything, trailers, all of that, simply because I wanted our people to have options of other jobs and training. All the agreements we signed, we signed for, uh, uh, you know, we, we signed to uh, share in the profit, profit share, jobs and training. And it changed the whole direction of, of our nation from, from we had really high, un, high unemployment. There was lots of people out of work. After that, we had 100% employment. Everybody who wanted a job had a job. And as I mentioned, our income went from $6 million to $55 million just on TNDC, but $100 million when, the, when you include all the joint venture income that we got a share of too. So it was a real a change. And even to this day, Teltan Nation Development Corporation is still doing well. They still maintain some of the joint ventures that I set up years ago. And they're still doing well. So, and, and you still are employing? I mean, every you still have like 100% employment on your, on your oh, nation? Oh, yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm pretty sure it is. Everybody who wants a job up in the Teltan territory has a job because, I mean, you know, that part of I don't know if, if you know where it's located. It's located in the northwest corner of BC and it's referred to as the Golden Triangle because of all the mining activity up there. So everybody's mm. got a job. Yeah. Wow. And was was growth that fast hard? I mean, when I because we just recently had someone win a lot of money and, and you know, we all sit back and go, how oh, that person's gonna come into a lot of money. I hope they know how to deal with it. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, you're right. Uh, the saving grace was that uh, we had all these joint venture agreements and, I, and under the joint venture agreements, the way it worked is I gave them permission to manage it. All we had a say in it. So, you know, that, that took away a lot of the uh, work. My, my biggest uh, problem was uh, with Tan Nation, you know, hiring and buying equipment right away because we had all these contracts. Yes, it was, it was uh, quick growth, but, uh, it was very worthwhile. Well, incredibly exciting. Oh yeah, no, it was it was it was an exciting time. You brought so much to to your First Nation group, like, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Um, so you are currently a consultant with Aero Transport Systems, and you work with 129 First Nations right now. Yes. Uh, what are you seeing or experiencing with those groups? Well, my job with Aero, I mean. What I do with Arrow was uh, because uh, I was president of uh, Telta Nation Development Corporation, I got to know many of the mining companies. So they hired me after I retired from that job to help them with working with uh, reclamation projects from other mines. So basically, that's all I do. And the other uh, job I had, as I mentioned, I worked with the, uh, it's called in Indigenous Advisory Monitoring Committee, set up by the federal government to monitor the uh, building of the TMX pipeline from Edmonton to Burnaby. 
So along that line was 129 First Nations. And my job was uh, economic development to help them access contracts on the TMX pipeline. But recently they moved me from that. I am now still with the federal government on contract, but I now I'm working with the uh, uh, 29 Marine First Nations, 25 on the island and five, four on the mainland. Okay. So, and again, it's to do with uh, the TMX, yeah, the pipeline. So, so just securing contracts? Securing contracts and helping to access the government funding for various initiatives that they have. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, you retired from one job and you sound busier than ever before. Well, I have about six jobs, you know. I mean, that's the, I, I'm chair of the uh, Telkin Heritage, Heritage Trust, and we, we, we've done well. And I sit on a couple of boards, one with Manual Life and Axiom, and another with uh, Primrose Lake Trust as an independent trustee. And, well, I, I do lots, really. Yeah. Yeah. What would, what would you say, I mean, do you have any struggles? <clears throat> I, and I don't know, I'm trying to think of the question, like, it can't be all roses, or can it be? Well, I mean, you know, as an Aboriginal person, I guess what I struggle with recently, as, as, as you know, you've heard about these graves that have been discovered, unmarked graves that have been discovered in Kamloops and Williams Lake. And, you know, it, it's been, it's been uh, when, when that came out, uh, I was struggling with that. Uh, it brings back a lot of memories, right, of what happened. And, even though we didn't go to the Catholic Church, still the, the experience that uh, they had, whether it's in the Catholic Church or the Anglican or whatever church group, it's, it was all, in, in a lot of cases, it was the same, you know, and they weren't treated well. Yeah. So, I mean, and then <clears throat> I struggle because uh, I see the uh, struggles that a lot of First Nations have, especially the you know, you get to know their situ situation, the 129. I don't, I talk to most of them, but I really don't know all of their struggles. But in general, you know, I can see First Nations, most of them, they don't have um, the capacity on the reserves to run these development corporations. Um, yeah, economically, it's a, it's a struggle for them, right? And they, not only economically, but socially and, and emotionally because i mean you know it's it's only recent history that this residential school closed down i think the last one closed down in 1997 yeah <clears throat> so yeah. and it's my generation right now i mean that uh that we took the brunt of it mm -hmm. yeah mm. do you um you know you you talk about the 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 first nations that you work with do you ever share your own story with them? Because oh. you, you, I, I feel you, you have a, there's a good success to your story. You know, you, you took some of those people that reached out to help you and you took it. Do you ever? You I know, know, yeah, no, I, I, I don't really, I mean, I mean, when you think about Christianity and the First Nations, I mean, I've thought about quite often. To me, it was a diabolical scheme when you think of John A. MacDonald using the churches to run the residential school. So because of all of this that's happened to 
First Nations across Canada, they, they, a lot of them, churches don't have a very good reputation. And it's very, very difficult. Uh, I, I, I don't push it myself because I know how people feel about Christianity. I, I mean, I, I, I do my job to the best of my ability. I treat, I treat them with respect. I don't, mm-hmm. I, 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 I just know what, what my people went through and I'm the last one that's going to ever abuse them in any way. So, yeah. I mean, I don't talk to them much about it unless I'm asked, right? Okay. And not many people ask. So I, yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you, you know, do you share when, cause people will ask you, you know, you, you have a very, you know, your presence is very positive. Your stories are very good. You laugh. You know, I, I look at, I, I know a little bit about your life. It, it's, you've raised some good children, you know, people oh, yeah. have got to ask you, like, how'd you do it? Right. Well, I mean, you know, I, I get that more from, not from the Aboriginal committee, but more from the, uh, the non-Aboriginal committee about, you know, I mean, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, so I think I'd like to ask you, um, oh, I had one more question about just no professional because you know what, I, I will wait for that. I'm going to skip, I'm going to, we're going to move to your, a little bit about your spiritual story. We've talked a little bit about it. Um, you, you know, you've dripped on us a little bit, but can you share a little more about your spiritual journey and your healing? Like how did the healing begin for you? Well, I mean, as I, as I mentioned, when I got out of the residential school, I was an angry, angry young man. Yeah. And when I ended up going to Rimby to high school, I mean, I, I tried my best to fit in. And, then, you know, I, I did pretty good. But uh, during my time at, in high school there, that's when all of this uh, rebellion started to kick in. And I kicked over the traces and quit school and joined the military and um, got married to a beautiful lady, uh, Val. We've been married for be 56 years this year so it's a, that's another story I'll tell, tell you but but you know um, so anyway um, I ended because of all of this anger I was violent and I ended up uh, getting picked up and taken to Edmonton uh, to the municipal jail for the weekend and I got it was there that I finally started thinking. I hated Christianity because of what happened to me, right? But they did tell you the story about Christ and, and God and and how he's available if you ever need him. Well, at this point in my life, when I was in jail, I got to really thinking about life. I had so many regrets about the way I had lived. Uh, I'm facing time in jail. Could lose my job, lose my family, lose everything. And I finally decided, you know what? That's, there must be some truth to Christianity. So that's the first time in my life I prayed. And I, 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 I am just, when I think back about it, I just think, what changed? What, what made me change? But you know what? I think it's, it's, it's the fact that um, I asked for forgiveness. And the other thing is, uh, to me, it was an attitude change, an instant attitude change about, all right, I got to do better. Somehow, I mean, it's, it's a mystery. It's a mystery, really, how, how God works in the person's heart. 
but anyway, and then I, you know, since then it's been a, it's been a, a long growth, slow growth, but over time, I think the only way anybody heals is to forgive. You can't carry this anger around in you all your life and, and expect to change. You can't. You can't. So, you know, I've forgiven the people who abused me. Uh, there's another story I can tell you about that, how I, what I did there too. But, you know, to me that was, that was uh, and then uh, as you mentioned earlier, people, the support that I, we had, Val and I, we, when we, when we both became Christian, I should just mention, when I came back out of jail, went back to Raymond City and told my wife, I became a Christian in jail. And she says to me, she says, you know, I always wanted to go to church, but I knew if we started doing that, you would leave. So we both changed. She was waiting. She was waiting Aww. for me to change. How so, old were you? 28. 28. Wow. Yeah. 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 So... Val's pretty awesome. Oh, no, no kidding. No kidding. Yes, very, very good. So, yeah, so anyway, that, I mean, you know, that's, and another thing, I, this is, I should tell you this story too. Uh, my, um, even though I had become a Christian, I was still angry and I, I still, I was a f scrapper, right? I always wanted to fight. So I, uh, I went, in Uranium City, I took Taekwondo for 10 years just to be tough. <laughs> and what I found out was I wasn't as tough as I thought I was. I always got beat up. So I tell you, after 10 years of this, I, I'm not fighting anymore. <laughs> That's good. So I haven't, haven't come near it for years. <laughs> so that was a good, I, when I think about it, I just think, what a strange way God works in, at times. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I don't know much about Taekwondo, but I think there's much more, there's much more than the fighting. It's, it's the, like, there's much more to that. So you were sent there for 10 years for a reason. To, yeah, yeah, to yeah. Taekwondo. No, I mean, the, the guy that taught us wasn't so much into the spiritual aspect of Taekwondo. He just taught you the, the, the uh, yeah. yeah, Taekwondo. And it was, it was good. It was, he was very good. Change my change my whole attitude. Yeah. So, now, just a little bit about you said something about you had a story on forgiveness and people. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. Um, I had uh, tried to find my abuser when I worked for CR. I worked for CRA, and at the time, I couldn't find him. Couldn't find him anywhere. I mean. And then when, when the internet came up, I typed his name and I found him. And uh, I wasn't sure what to do with it. At the time, we were living in Sherwood Park, going to the Sherwood Park Alliance Church here. And there was a group that was there, it was run by this young, young kid compared to me. I was, I was about 40 something. He was 23 years old. He was head of the group. Smart, smart young man, and he had lots of problems, and he went through. So we, he, anyway, I told him what it was. I said, I found the guy. I was going to phone him and really give him back. He said, don't be surprised if he tells you it was all your fault. Don't come back crying next week and say, 
you're all brokenhearted because the guy wouldn't accept it. And it's exactly what happened. When I phoned him and I said, I said to him, uh, you know, I told him who I was and I told him, told him what he did to me. And he said to me, well, you said it was okay. I said, but I was only nine years old. And I was just, couldn't get in, no apology, no nothing. So, but I mean, again, you know, you still have to forgive, right? Yeah. So, that would have been hard. It was hard. It was hard. But he was wise. He said, don't come back crying. Yeah. <laughs> if you get that response. Yeah. I guess he, yeah. So. Because forgiveness is up to you. It's. Well, exactly. It's exactly. Not it's up, up to you. You yeah. can't. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, um, now you had talked, you talked a lot about forgiveness and you suggest people seek forgiveness. You know, you talk about joy. You have an acronym for joy. Yes, yes, yes. Um, oh, I was trying to, trying to put some semblance of really what happened and how does a person change? What changes you? Yeah. So... In my life, I mean, and I'm sure it's true of everybody else's life, you're going to change. You need help, right? So in my case, when I say joy, I, I, I meant Jesus first. That's the only thing. That is the first step in my healing was that, you know, accepting Christ, asking forgiveness, forgiving others, the attitude change. That, to me, that was the, that was the starting point. Without that, I don't. It's very difficult to change on your own. And then when I mention others, I think of the J O others. I think of first of all other people. My wife, first of all, she was so patient with with me. And uh, I'm going to tell you this other story. When we when we met, um, all we did was party. So. We really did not know each other very well. So because I was a such a handful, we got talking about one day and I told her about my residential school experience and why I was like I was. And she had her problems too. So we, she got talking and she said, well, I just got out of reform school when we met. So here we were. She was 16 and I was 21 and we got married when she was 17 and I was 22 and both both uh, with problem backgrounds. So I was, we always say if there was ever a straw vote taken at the beginning of marriage, we would have been voted the most likely not to succeed. <laughs> so here we are today, still married. That's, uh, you know, because when I think about, you know, I talk a lot about surrounding yourself with people. Right. And here you are, you know, you marry someone that has the problems, like you guys are coming together. You both have problems. That's Whereas, right. you know, it's interesting that, and you both changed. I mean, you came home and said, you know, I, I want to be a follower of Jesus. And she's like, I've been waiting for you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a, it's yeah. a good, cause you know, sometimes so, there's people so, right in front of us. Yeah. So when the, and then when you think about others, she was the first, right? And then during my career, it is amazing how the Lord has put people. First of all, I mentioned to the devotee, the RCMP, picking me up in the foster home. And when I was in the military, I was still a rebel. And we had a Christian sergeant 
that took me under his wing and tried to help me, help me, made me go to school during the days and work at an evening so I get most of my grade 12. And then when I was in CRA, uh, I had, um, no, then when Transport Canada, after, after, um, after the military, again, I had people there that I still remember. Dennis uh, out of Winnipeg, I can't remember his last name. He was so good and helped me with with education, etc. And then went to CRA, uh, a guy by the name of Don Massey helped me. They arranged for me to go to university to finish my degree, U of A, to get my BCom major in accounting so that I can get a promotion. And then Aboriginal Business Canada was great. great. Uh, there's people there that I still remember to this day. There's So everywhere I went, the Lord put others there to help. So, I love how you identify people, like you have named them. Have you ever reached out to them and thanked them? Ah, uh, you know what? Um, I don't think so, because, I mean, when I think back, some of these guys have passed, you know. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, uh, then the acronym Why yourself. Okay. I come to the conclusion, you know, what's the saying? You know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink, right? All of this, whether it became a Christian, I've got everybody helping me, I still had to do it. You have to, you have to take it in yourself to do the work. You have to make the change yourself, like. Like, uh, like, like an education. I didn't even finish grade 12. And the only university that would take me when I was work, wanted to leave Transfer Canada was uh, Trinity Western on probation as an adult. So I quit my job and moved there uh, for two years and on probation for one semester. I had to work hard because, none, you know, the fear, in my situation, the fear of failure was a driving force. I could not afford to fail. I've got a wife and three kids to worry about. So then I went to, uh, you know, transferred after that, my first, after two years to Edmonton to work for Canada Revenue Agency, and they put me through university. And that was a struggle because I never had grade 12. Mm. But I got through. So, I mean, you know, the effort on to do that and the effort to change is always a struggle. I mean, you know, I I, I read so much about it. You know, people in, in, in with uh, adverse childhood experience, they say you never get over it. I always tell people, I think I'm, I, I'm 99% good. It's the 1% to worry about. <laughs> oh, I love that you have so much humor. <laughs> you are a joy. Um, so that's, you know, just joy, Jesus, others, and yourself. Yes. And yeah. Yeah. So your joy and your changes, um, you changed the whole direction of your family because you could have went, you and Val could have went one way and the choices you made and, and I mean, Jesus, others, yourself, everything uh, changed that direction. What advice would you give others who are feeling limited to choice? Like, I, I can't do that. I, you know, I don't know. Oh, that's probably, you know, I don't know. What's your advice? <laughs> well, well, for, for me, it was an attitude change. I mean, I said, you know, I, I struggle with this, with the First Nations. How do you begin to get people to change? 
you know, and there's always all of these programs across Canada about helping First Nation change. But you know what? Programs don't work. It's an individual decision. In my case, it was an individual decision to accept Christ, to change my attitude. And because of that, my attitude changed. My, my family, we brought up our family different. All our, our kids all do well. So now we have uh, eight grandkids and or nine grandkids and eight great grandkids. And, you know, all of them, we, they, we've got them in to go to Christian schools. And it's changed. I mean, I, you know, as an Aboriginal family, it's, uh, I think we were doing well. Yeah. I just wanted to mention to you too, I hope you asked me the question about my, my um, experience going through the hearing in the Yukon about the residential school. Oh, yes. You, you, um, were you invited to attend? Were you part of, how did that happen? And then tell us. Yeah, yeah because, you know, the, 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 uh, the reconciliation, uh, under that, um, I was the first one to be asked to go to the, in the Yukon to be interviewed about the residential schools. So this, that's the first time I had to sit down and really think about uh, my experience and write it down so that you can do your presentation to them. And that, I mean, to me, that was very, very moving experience just going through that. And that, that's where I found out all of this information about myself, you know, about, about my school records and all of this. I didn't know anything about that. So anyway, I go through, go through the whole theory, hearing and he asked me all these questions. There was all, a lot, a lot to do with the abuse, right? Uh, they concentrate on that because it was a dollar value that they were setting on that. So anyway, at the end, his name was John. He says to me, Bill, he says, I am so glad to see that you're a residential school survivor. And I said, you know what, John? I hate that word survivor. To me, it sounds like a, a victim mentality word. I said, who wants to be a survivor? Doesn't, that doesn't sound good. And he says, what do you call yourself? And that's where it came from. I said, I'm a residential school conqueror. So, so that, that uh, and, he, and he says, I've never heard that before. <laughs> so, I was- I was texting my daughter today that I was interview what I, I was talking to, and I said, uh, "He's a residential school conqueror." I said, "Those are his words." <laughs> She's like, I can't wait to listen. Uh, yeah. So I, I think you kind of answered this, but because uh, I think I believe you were in jail for the weekend, and you decided, like, I want to follow Jesus. But and so the question is, you know, at what point did you decide your past circumstances? Stop divine. Stop defining your present future. Right then, yeah. That's what that. That's what I say. I, I don't understand it. How the attitude can change over the weekend? Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying that my life was perfect after that, but it was an attitude change. You know. Yeah. And for me, I feel like you have put in a lot of work. And you can correct me. But I don't know if you're the, you know, do you read all the leadership books or are you the guy that you, you talk to people, you ask for help, you do the work? I don't, I mean, I, I don't think I've read any leadership books that I can, that I can remember. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I, I took leadership when I was in university, right? Yeah. But I mean, 
I, I don't know. I just, I just do what I do. That's, yeah. No. You know. And I, I mean, I think that's amazing. Just you, your attitude, you, you made the change. You just, yeah. Cause I think there's some people who say, I'll read the book. No, do the work. Like, well, then, yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I just think uh, God gave me a brain for numbers. And I know numbers very well. You know, I can look at financial statements and know where the problems are. And that's where my uh, strength comes in working with other First Nations, too. All right. That's good. All right. Well, we are, um, I'm going to ask you just a couple final questions. Um, I know that uh, you are involved with Leader Impact. So tell us a little bit about how you got involved and, and what your involvement is. Yeah, uh, we got involved, I think it was about 2000. I'm, I'm I'm not sure of the year, about 2006. My daughter went with, she got involved with Leader Impact first. And she ended up winning on a a tour. Global exchange. So then she asked us if we wanted to go on the one to Pueblo. So we put our names, excuse me, they put our names in and then they accepted us. And my wife and I went there. It was a great experience. Uh, we got to meet uh, quite a few of the uh, leaders in Mexico. Got to meet the agriculture minister. I had a chat with him about, uh, because it was an Aboriginal person, he was very interested in in uh, the struggles that we, our Aboriginal people have in Canada and what they have there, very similar. So we got to know him very well. So to me, Leader Impact Group was, uh, was very, uh, I think that was a very profitable uh, experience for myself. And, and then after I got back, uh, they asked me if I would be interested in going to Saskatoon and taking this speaking course that they offered, which is, again, was really helpful. And because of that opportunity, I've had lots of opportunities to speak, especially uh, prayer breakfasts. Yes. Yes. So, yeah. So, I mean, it, it, and, and we're a supporter. So I think they do a good job. Good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well. Well, as you know, Leader Impact is dedicated to leaders having a lasting impact. And as you continue to move through your own journey in life, and it is an amazing one to listen to you, have you considered what you want your faith legacy to be when you leave this world? Yes, that uh, he's treated everybody with the respect they deserve. And, uh, you know, we, my wife and I, if anybody phones us, we help them. I want to be known as somebody that's generous and because of God's generosity to me, to us. So, yeah, no, I, I am, I'm so grateful, thankful on how life has turned out. I, you know, in every, in every way, wow. I, I, I can't complain about anything. And I'm, I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Good. And my, Last question, unless you, I've, you want to tell a story. Do you have any other story you've missed telling? <laughs> um, I have one more question for you. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, my last question is, what brings you the greatest joy? Um, my wife, you know, my family, uh, my church, you know, actually, uh, I'm proud to be Canadian. I think we live in a great country. I don't always agree with our leaders, but <laughs> good country. And, you know, um, and the ability to help First Nations. 
to me that if I can help them in any way, I, I do it. Yeah. You know, I want I want our First Nations to I want they want them to, I want them to be successful and change. And that's not even about money anymore. It's about healthy emotional. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 I think that was you know you talked about in your um, in your bio you said you have a deep passion to help First Nations grow economically, collectively, and personally. Yes. That's yes, yes. wide range. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, Bill, thank you for spending the last just over 50 minutes with us. Uh, I have looked forward to this, to, to see you again and to, to just to hear your story. You have an amazing story of just forgiveness and it, it takes hard work to change our attitudes. And I mean, we can't do it without, without God. And so... Yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, you, what you just said, it takes hard work, I mean, to change. I mean, once your attitude can change instantly, but it's the work afterward to make it, right? Yeah, it's yeah. it's a daily, it's daily. Yeah, I I have a plaque on my wall by Charles Swindoll. You want me to read it to you? I do want you to read it. Okay. <clears throat> okay, I'm going to read it to you. This is the one that's on. You, you want to see it? It's here. Okay. <laughs> it, says, it says, the longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life. Attitude to me is more important than facts. It is more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think or say or do. The remarkable thing is we have a choice every day regarding the attitude we'll embrace for that day. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string we have, and that is our attitude. I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% of how I react to it. And so it is with you. We are in charge of our attitudes. So that, I have that in my wall, and that, to me, that's really the key, changing your attitude. Yeah, and that is a lovely way to end. Thank you, Bill, for sharing with us. Oh, you're welcome. So uh, this ends our podcast with you, but if anyone, um, and I hope everyone enjoyed their time as much as I did, if anyone wants to engage with you in any way, how can they find you, contact you? They can get, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook. All right. You're on Facebook a lot. No, not often. But <laughs> I don't post anything, but I read <laughs> people's posts. All right. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. It was a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Well, if you're part of Leader Impact, you can always discuss or share this podcast with your group. And if you are not yet in a Leader Impact group, we would love to have you. Check out groups available in Canada at leaderimpact.ca or if you're listening from anywhere else in the world, check out leaderimpact.com or get in touch with us by email info at leaderimpact.ca and we will connect you. And if you like this podcast, please leave us a comment, give us a rating or review. This will help other global leaders find our podcast. Thank you for engaging with us. And remember, impact starts with you.